Hello, everybody. We hope your weekend was amazing because this is coming out on Monday, but we're recording it the Thursday before. I can never lie to you. The L-E-F-K-O-E man does not lie to the 33%. I can't lie right now. There are very few people that I thought of that would handle quarantine better than Warren Sharp. And when he logged on, I can see him on Zoom right now. You can watch the episode on Facebook. I knew I was right. He, he has what looks to be a professional background, but I know that is just the beautiful lighting in his basement. He has all the screens still going. He's getting ready to put out another incredible book. Warren Sharp is back on the fucking Left Go Show. What's up, Warren? What is up, buddy? Really happy to see other humans on this uh, that I like, that I actually enjoy seeing. So um, it's great to see you and talk to you. And uh, definitely, you're right. I mean, I was set up for quarantine before anything ever even happened. I've been almost quarantining myself for several years in my bunker down here. Uh, but definitely rose the game to a totally new level uh, over the last month. You are one of the first people to tell me early on with COVID-19 and the spread of coronavirus that this thing was scaring you. And I, you have proof because you were supposed to go to the Sloan Conference at MIT. You said, don't feel comfortable about it. And then it pretty much spread, spread around the Sloan Conference. When was that? Uh, so the Sloan Conference was the first weekend in March. Um, but I had been tracking it for a while. As you know, we went down to the Super Bowl together. Um, and I had been tracking it well before even that point in time, which was, you know, the Super Bowl was late February. But, um, you know, my, my daughter has a compromised immune system. She's on some medications that make it very difficult um, you know, so without getting into too many details with that. Um, it's already front of I, mind for you. Yeah, I was already well aware and I, I knew that um, her being extremely high risk for this, uh, I had to take all precautions. So, uh, I mean, when we went down to the Super Bowl, I didn't tell anybody, but I wore a mask on the flight down there. I was literally the only person in the entire airport who wore a that's mask. That's first there. week of February. Yeah, the only person who wore a mask back. And then I kept tracking it i kept studying it when when i thought that it was just in um the china region i was more comfortable with my next couple of trips i took i had to go up there mid-february we, we did a live show up uh in up there I, 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 in china. Up, I was like you went to china no no so i was up in new york and then i also took a trip to the combine i had to meet with eight different offense coordinators at the nfl combine so that was like mid to late february I studied it. I took all the precautions I thought that I needed to in order to fly to Indianapolis, including like checking the size of the plane and what I thought it might have been used for. Mm -hmm. Okay, this plane's not going to take international travel, so I think I'll be okay if I wear a mask, if I use a lot of sanitizer, all of those different types of things. Um, but then when I got back from that, uh, things started to pick up and that's when we started hearing Italy was doing what Italy was doing. And when I knew that it got to Europe, I knew we were on the East mm. coast in bad trouble because there's so much international travel and, and things that happen with people from Italy and other European countries to the East coast of the United States. So as you said, I was supposed to go up to New York. i uh, sorry. I was supposed to go up to Boston. I looked at the flight map for the seats. I saw that it was like a plane that was going to be used for international travel. I didn't feel comfortable with that. Mm. I was either going to rent a car to drive up there to speak at Sloan, or I was going to take the train um, and go up there. Yeah, and I remember you calling me and saying, you don't trust the train either. 
Yeah, because it was going to be stopping in Baltimore and Philly and you and know, this New is York I'm not going to lie. Like I'm going to really be honest. When Warren was saying all this, I was like, eh, I think you're overreacting. And and then the thing is now is like that's why I'm I'm happy to have you on. Is one I want to talk some football. Two, I just haven't talked to you in a long time. And three, you were I'm not saying you were first. Obviously, there's like actual people, but like in my world and my purview and of like all the football people, I feel like you were taking it the most serious. Um, you also look like somebody that carries Purell in his carry on. You know what I mean? So it's, it, I'm not, I'm not as quite as much of a germaphobe as crack is, but really I'm, I'm crack is a huge germaphobe. Oh, and the most incredible. He'll tell you firsthand. He's, he's, he uses, san- he uses sanitizer like every single time he shakes anybody's hand well before any of this even happened, you know, like years ago. The, I, I started out, I'll just tell you this, I started out as a completely normal person um, back in my earlier years, right? Even in college, everything after that, I worked in DC, I'd take right. public transportation all over the place. I'm not washing my hands, I'm not doing anything careful. Uh, but my daughter was born during the swine flu outbreak uh, back in 2009. And the nurses in the doctors were like, okay, if anybody comes in here to see her, you've got to wash your hands, you've got to use sanitizer, limit the amount of people that come in. And so my wife and I basically at that point became aware of how easily things spread, of how cautious that things need to be for infants and other little kids. And we turned into germaphobes through that experience. Um, and, you know, we've always been pretty cautious, but yes, I was... I mean, I the, the pilot of my flight when I got onto the plane to fly down to Miami, it was one of those little planes that he was standing right yeah. there and he laughed at me and he said, because he saw my mask on, he said, oh, you're not taking any chances, are you? And I was like, I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not. And of course, like I said, literally- In your head, I you're like, like what's, the, what's the benefit of taking a chance? Right. Well, the thing for me is- um, I care most about my daughter more than anything. So people might look at me like, why is this guy wearing a mask? Nobody else in the whole airport, nobody else on the flight, the flight attendants, the pilots, nobody's wearing a mask. What's wrong with this guy? But I'll do anything. I'll look like a fool if it means I'm going to give my daughter one extra percent chance of not getting something. Um, so that was what it was about. That's why for me. I love but you, Warren. That's why I the love other you. thing that I thought was you, really when you believe that something is right or they're like, you are you are very scientific in your beliefs, and it's funny because I feel like you talk about football the same way you talk about coronavirus. You know, right? And that's exactly what I was going to lead into: is that the people that I thought were the most intelligent about the fears of what could be with coronavirus were people with betting or analytics backgrounds, because the analytics people understood. Uh, exponential growth and the ease of the spread and how really this could be a concern. And people with a betting background understood risk and they understood that, you know, you need to take calculated risks, which is what I was doing. I was calculating my risk. Okay, I'll go to Indy, but these are the precautions I'll take, but I need to do this trip. And so I'm going to, but the next week, based on new data that I had learned and things that I was studying, I don't feel comfortable going to Boston because I've learned these things. I'm factoring into my decision-making um, and that risk was too much for me to deal with. And so I had to tell our, our friend Mina, you know, Mina Kimes, uh, cause I was supposed to be on her panel. I, I really apologize, but I don't feel comfortable doing it. I, it was something that I took really seriously because it's a privilege to speak at Sloan. Very few people get invited to do that. And um, I spoke, in 2018 
I'm sorry, it's 2019 and I was excited to speak again in 2020, but I just didn't feel like I could take that risk. So um, I didn't want all of this to happen. And, you know, fortunately we are taking precautions, but it definitely frustrated me um, as people that follow me on Twitter probably saw me. I did two different things on Twitter related to the coronavirus. The first thing I did was um, some of the things that I was researching and learning, different podcasts I saw, videos I watched, I tried to put put a thread together to educate people. These are like the top things that I was most impacted by in terms of what I learned the most about with regard to coronavirus. You could read up on these eight posts, eight tweets or whatever articles or videos to educate yourself because you know, I was seeing things like on the Joe Rogan show, this epidemiologist came on there talking about how easily this thing spread just by breathing air out mm. and somebody else near you breathing air in and the infected person is either asymptomatic or has not yet begun to show symptoms. Like it's a day or two before he's going to get sick. He's not sick at that moment, like physically outwardly, but the virus is in his, the back of his throat. And as he breathes, it's going to spread. And you Warren, know, that can I interrupt you? Yeah. Cause I think, um, the, the, I'm, I'm, I don't know what it is about you are. You make me more honest. There's something about me right now that when I hear someone, I think it's the word asymptomatic. When I hear someone start describing it, my natural reaction is to go, I'm not going to go outside. I'm good. Like I just, it, there's something about uh, the world we live in right now and the repetitive nature of this news and how everyone keeps saying the same things that it's, it has to be done. Like I was, I was listening to this audio book about creating habits and they were talking about going to these villages in third world countries and how the number one way that they could extend all of the civilizations was by getting them to wash their hands. And what they had to do was they had to go, how can we make this a habit they want to do? Because as always, when you're training something, if you have to opt in, it's harder. So what they do is they go, okay, well, what if we make the, the soap smell good? And what if we make it foam up? And what if we give it to them for free? And it was these things that they were like, oh, it smells good. Your brain goes, I want more of this. And they were able to like completely change the health levels of these small, just by washing your hands. But I don't know what it is when I, it's something in my head. I go, I'm not an idiot. I'm going to wash my hands. I'm not going to go outside. That's been my weird experience during this is like, I get the message and I want to turn everything off. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, 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 that was the second thing I did related to exactly what you're saying is um, I got frustrated online sometimes exactly. when I'm seeing these crowds of people not reacting, you know, the, the crowds in Florida, right? The crowds in Florida where yeah, they're going like, to, we knew that was going to happen. Like, I know. Like, I, know I, I would also say analytically for you to assume that the entire civilization was going to be like, you know what? You got it. Like we knew that there was going to be a number. The question is, is was that number bigger or smaller than, than what the number, than what we could have guessed? Right. And, and I guess, you know, you can't, you can't understate the decision-making of certain people in certain crowds and you know, Disney world, right. And Florida was going to shut down. We are shut down. Uh, Tuesday is going to be our last day in operation. So what happens Tuesday night? See, Fucking now you can question that because that's management and that's like, yeah, that's dumb. 
hundreds and thousands of people crowd into the place on Tuesday night because it's the going out of business night for Disney World. It's like the reason they're not going to be open Wednesday is because it's dangerous for you to be here. So why the hell would you pack the place on Tuesday night? And then, of course, you got all the spring breakers and the governor doesn't want to close the beaches down. And so each individual mayor has to take responsibility and try to close the beaches. You still have you know, a variety of different churches that are open and operating. And, and all you have to do is like if people this is the cool thing about um, the thing I think was our saving grace with this. I don't want to say it's the singular thing, but the fact that we have social media and it's so easy to spread news. Imagine if this happened oh, yeah. 15 years ago, right? Like the lack of information that we would have real time to be able to understand what's happening in all these other countries. We just be entirely reliant upon, you know, national news and having social media with all this access is so much easier. Um, and the other thing that is completely scary is, you know, we did get a little bit of a head start. I think China obviously was BS on their numbers yep. and sharing the information. It really screwed the rest of the world. But imagine if this thing started in America. Imagine if the outbreak here was in America. We had nothing set up, no testing established. It, it would have just been so much worse. So we're lucky in a sense that it started somewhere else, even though I think we were slow to react, et cetera. Uh, we're lucky it started elsewhere, and we're lucky that we're in an age where we can spread information and, uh, and news so easily amongst people. But like, you're going to church, or you're, or you're oh, a pastor, yeah. or you know, I don't want to get into any like specific religious, religious discussion here, but... Out in Seattle, Washington, they had a choir practice. I don't know if you probably read about this. They had a choir practice. Nobody there was sick. Nobody actually coughed. There was no sneezing or anything like that. They knew that they weren't supposed to do this choir practice, but they decided eh, nobody's sick. If you're healthy, come to the choir practice. I think there were like 40 people there or yeah. so. And over half of them ended up catching coronavirus yeah. because from two different people. So why are you going to go to a church service right now and, and, and risk that? Why are you going to host I that? Think, I think a lot of it is, um, like, I think it's been very interesting from the New York City perspective. We're spending a lot of time on this. I guess it's cathartic for both of us. Um, and from the New York perspective, when someone calls you not New York and they go, are you safe? You keeping safe? You being safe? It's weird because there's part of you that goes, yeah, bro. Like, I'm like, I got it. And, and it's, the thing is, is because the, the news right now is the epicenter is New York. It is going to be everywhere very soon. Seven to 10 days, we'll be getting plenty in California. It's going to change rapidly. That's what exponential growth is. But for me, it's, it's always somewhere else. And it, it takes someone around you to get impacted for the real weight of the situation to go on. Because that's, that's, one, that's every generation, but it's young people. You know, it's young people never die. And the thing is, is I'm in that, I'm at that turning point between like a young old generation. I was still raised on newspapers, but I, I came up really in the digital age. And the thing is too, we're in a, we're in a wild age of misinformation. And so when you have, you know, leaders and, and government officials and big time leaders say it's fine and then change it, you know, it's tough. But the, the reason I love having you on right now is that a lot of people are wondering what the next step is. And because you are never an issue with bias, you are strictly looking at the numbers. And I know that there's probably no one that wants football back more than you. But I also know that there's no one that doesn't want to rush people back more than you. You had an idea 
of how we could start the NFL season, I guess, on time. And I kind of want you to share it. What's your idea? So, you know, I, I, I haven't mapped it out statistically, but my thought behind this was we can't have players uh, risking interaction with themselves and, and their teammates uh, and one of them coming down with something. And we know that you can be asymptomatic. We also know that you could be a carrier of this for a couple of days before you actually you know, start displaying symptoms. And if this goes from one player uh, to his team, I mean, it'll spread to most of the people on that team. I mean, it's very easy to do that. You're oh. sitting in a locker room, you're interacting, you're eating food together at the cafeteria. It goes to the, to the trainer and then the trainer touches everybody. Like it's, yeah. Exactly. So my thought process on this is, and, and this could be wildly crazy, I don't know, but my thought process is you start right now, we're in April, erecting some practice bubbles at your facility. We are not going to be having training camp uh, probably starting on time, but we're also not going to be able to have training camp at the locations that most of these teams would go for training camp. So we're going to have to erect some practice bubbles at the location of your facility. And initially what these practice bubbles are going to do, you know, not, not now, not in May, not in June, but in July at some point, we're going to have like tent cities in these practice bubbles and we're going to send the players to these tent cities and they're going to basically be isolated, uh, quarantined, self-quarantined there with in themselves inside their own individual kind of space so that we can ensure that enough time goes by that, you know, 10 days, whatever the days are, we'll have better data on that. You know, you can't trust the Chinese data. We'll have better data on that by the time we get to July uh, as to how long somebody needs to be quarantined before we say, okay, good seal of approval, you, go, you aren't sick. Mm. Once that period occurs and that passes by and, no, and you know, none of the players are getting sick, then they're allowed to interact with one another, do all the film studies, do all the meetings. They cannot leave the facility and you can't have other people coming in and interacting. The people that are going to be there are all the people that were quarantined together. It's just like in a household when nobody, when you, if you're in your house for 14 days with just your family, okay, you can feel a hundred percent confident that we are not going to get this thing unless it's introduced into our house from some other element, right? right? Unless we leave and get it or some, package comes that has it on it or we interact with a neighbor who has it if we just stick to ourselves we are not going to get it it's impossible that's what these teams need to do now the child so i think they can do that and still get in some form of a limited camp towards the end of summer like in the august time frame now, again we're not going to be doing i don't know how you would operate with regard to uh preseason games and crap mm -hmm. like that but i think you can at least get your camps going and your players learning the playbook, practicing things together. So this is my um, issue with it is, uh, it, to me, it's the correct way to do it. The problem is, is there's no player that's going to separate themselves from their family for the entire NFL season and, and the practice. They're not going to go, hey, I'm going to say goodbye with you in the real world. I'm going to go live in a bubble and play football. The thing, though, is, is if you're looking at if this is the only thing that matters in the world, that's how you do it. But there's all these outside factors. I said this to the other night. I just think because of the doubt until there's a cure, I don't see how we're getting large amounts of people, 22 people banging into each other at the same time with all, of, and then fans. I, I don't even understand it. I just, for me, 
it requires that perfect bubble situation. But to me, there are too many factors for this to be going on. And for the NFL to say, we're releasing schedules in May and we're playing, it's they're they're going in my opinion they're going to look really dumb in September I think. Well, I you know look I was in line with the GMs when they were like man we can't do free agency right now this is going to be too crazy we can't do the draft right now this is going to be too crazy free agency seems to have worked out with the lone exception that you can't get do the physicals and so you've got players that some some of the contracts have fallen through already because yeah. um, so. That that's a, a wild card factor. Hopefully that doesn't happen very often. Um, the draft will be a little bit more difficult on the GMs, but it's going to happen. I think what the NFL is doing is they realistically do not know what will happen with the season, totally. but they are doing everything that they can do for the time being so that we aren't going to prevent the season from happening with our own administrative decision and inaction now. We're going to do everything we need to so that if the health element of this is okay by that period of time, we are ready. That makes sense. Um, and so I, I agree with you on that. I, so from that perspective, I think the schedule is the first moment where it does become a little bit more strange. I mean, I, I'm not, I never really watch those schedule opening night shows all that much. I look at this, I get the schedule as soon as it comes out and I start incorporating into my stuff. I start analyzing, I start studying it, which teams are going three straight road games, which teams are, you know, have early buy, all that different shit I'm focusing on at that point. I could care less what the talking heads are saying on TV at that moment. Um, but most of those guys, I, I can guarantee you that half the show, a quarter of the show is going to be spent on, do you think we can really start on September right. or whatever? That's and it's just going to be this annoying discussion with people who aren't experts in the field talking about whether or not we can start then. So that to part of the show is going to be annoying. The NFL draft being entirely digital, how do you think that impacts this? Um, I, th- that I think it's a great question because it's definitely going to have a big impact. Uh, I think some, certain people are underestimating that. I think the technology element, like I I know some GMs, um, some GMs are germaphobes. Like there's a percentage of all of society that's germaphobic and these guys are at their home. And so they don't want IT guys coming in and that sort of thing. Well, you know, you can, I can take my computer system and set it out on my back porch and have an IT guy come over and hook it all up for me out there. And I'm watching what he's doing. I'm talking to him through my back door. And then I can, once he's gone, I can bring it into the house. So that type of thing is, is not something that they need to be worried about. But what you will need to worry about, um, number one, is your ability to quickly communicate with the other guys. And you know how it is. Like when we do shows together in New York, it's just we're vibing, we're sitting next yes. to each other. When we do Zoom shows, it's just a lot more difficult. It's not as, as um, it doesn't have that relationship. Dude, element. you have like 12 minutes to talk to everybody in your room and not only decide what player we want to pick, you're also trying to figure out who are we getting calls from right now to make trades? Who do we need to be making calls to? And the number one issue that I always have when I do a Zoom or any form of telecommunications is I can't hear you when I'm talking. So, and I can't imagine, when you have everybody in the room, I'm sure they're sitting there being like, just hand in the slip. There's also no handing in of slips right now. That process, which could have been a finger in the air and hand, it's, you have to send that puppy in. If, if the NFL couldn't handle Elvis Stumerville's faxed contract, I am worried about the communication on draft night. I, we have all been there in our fantasy draft. 
and it's ticking down. You go, what? You know what? I'll take Yahoo's recommendation. <laughs> right. And, and so I agree with you. Oh, but all of these things can be planned for and the smartest teams will. I personally would be implementing a system of nonverbal communication, right? I can see you on camera, but you're right. You talk and it interacts like, so I would be anything possible, hand signals, little signs that we're going to hold up, things of that nature so that it's, it just improves the efficiency of our ability to communicate in a shortened period of time. And then so you'd two, actually not just be having discussions right now with your team about like, who do we like? You'd also be like, Hey, let's do a practice run through of nonverbal video communication for draft night. Absolutely. Look, you, you got to think outside the box. You got to try to un, like prepare for the worst and figure out how we can take advantage of this. The other thing and that I think smart teams are going to do is take advantage of the indecision. You know, when does, what, what does Warren Buffett says that say that it's time to invest? You invest when other people are scared, right? When other people are proud, that's when you should get a little bit scared. But when they are scared, that's when you get more greedy. Um, I'm wondering if certain teams, right, have more confidence in this draft class. They haven't had the ability to meet with these guys attend pro days, bring them into practice. But if you've done good scouting, if you have a good handle on the season, if you have confidence in your scouts and you have confidence in the analytics and everything that you've measured, maybe you actually get a little bit more aggressive because this draft class, I mean, it's deep at certain positions, very deep. And you take advantage of some of that by maybe even trading with other teams that are like, ah, we don't know, fine, we'll move back. You can trade up, get it. I'm usually against trading up, but there might be opportunities here to do that from teams that what just about this? aren't sure and scared. What about this? There will be teams that are more prepared for this than not. The NFL is not giving out like standard equipment to every team. I'm sure right now that you got like the owner of the, the Panthers saying, you're going to install better wires in all of my front office because I need the communication. And then other people are going to be on like DSL. Like it's, it's like the Bengals, Mike Brown's going to be like, I'm going to use a homing pigeon. It just, it feels a little bit better, but I'm curious, like, let's say, let's say I'm the Patriots and you're right in front of me. Can I just have like every like coach find ways to reach out to you at the same time and clog all your phone lines? (laughs) Like, very good point. I don't know. Like, I, just, I mean, that type of stuff could happen with or without the Zoom, but every right. minute is a little bit more enhanced when you have the Zoom. That's why I thought it was actually an interesting idea where one guy proposed that we take a week and do one round every single night, right? And, and you could spread it out a little bit more and you have a little bit more opportunity. I thought that was pretty damn, a pretty damn good idea. And it would myself. have been a lot of fun. It would have been fun for people that cover the sport. You know what it would have been? If we would have done that, it would have been a rebirth and the value and the care of the fourth round. Here's what I mean. People forget that the draft a few years ago used to be rounds one, two, and three on day one, rounds four, five, six, and seven. And we used to really care about the first pick of the fourth round because it was the first pick that would come on on Sunday. And then it went to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I just, it's the, the fourth round started day two, announced day three, but I, a seven day event, why not? It would be easier on the teams and it would be more fun. You could even make it 20 minutes a pick. Yeah, you could, you could spread it out. You could have more opportunities. So that's why I agree with you hundred percent. 
especially once you move past, I forget what round it is that the time between picks gets shorter. Maybe oh, like I think it's I think it's the I think it's the fifth okay. round. It goes to like two minutes a pick or something like that. So so like you're gonna have those two minutes if that's what it is being like super crazy in that room uh, in the Zoom room, and you are gonna have things that can can. Which team? Which NFL team do you believe is technically, technologically, the most savvy and will be prepared for the draft? Damn, I mean that's a, that's a tough question because I truly have. I could make a funny guess, but in terms of being educated, okay, I don't know. I know guys that study the analytics the best and have good understanding of that. But here, we're literally talking about IT preparation. We're talking about um, then. There, then we are talking about analytically driven decision making listen bob craft made his money in communications and television and paper they're ready so i i think that there's the opportunity for certain teams to just take advantage of the system itself and be better prepared and i think they need to start prepping that nonverbal communication and other techniques that they're going to to use i mean get the get the workstations uh that these coaches are going to be sitting at for this thing uh i mean like mine, right? Like get like your six monitors. I'm literally, yeah. uh, if, if getting radiation from monitors is going to shorten your lifespan. I mean, I've got six monitors within a foot of me in almost every direction. Warren, did you or your wife cut your hair? I cut my hair. Do you always cut your hair? Yeah. Wow. What a phenomenal job you've done. Look at that clean side fade. Yeah. I'm very I've jealous. Been, I've been, I've been, I've been cutting my hair for a while. I mean, I'm not necessarily proud of it, but the, the thing that for me, um, it's, it's almost like how I ran, ran my business for so many years. Um, I would farm stuff out and then I wouldn't be happy with the result. I'm like, why am I wasting my time and paying money for stuff that I'll just work harder and I'll do shit myself. And so I went to enough barbers when I was in college and, and they fuck random shit up with my hair. I'm like, what the hell? I, I wasted my time coming here. You screwed it up and I paid you for it. Like, this is stupid. Uh, if, if I'm going to make a mistake on my hair, uh, I'd rather so do it So you myself. learned, did you like read books or watch YouTube videos or did you just watch people cut your hair and said, I learned how to do a fade on myself? No, I, I, I watched some YouTube videos <laughs> and then I started, I started doing that. So I might just, have to. It's, it's like anything. You just research it, research it, try to get good information, get the right tools and then... Uh, implement now i don't i don't have a world-class fade going here like it's, it's pretty it's, good though it's the best that i can do for the time being and i don't you're you and my family are the only people who are really seeing me right now i mean i did do a, uh some video conferences with some college coaches uh and nfl coaches uh over the last couple of weeks but um they don't care i mean god these guys you have no idea what is going on with college I'm talking to college head coaches. I'm talking to NFL. Tell, give me an idea. What, what's going on? Okay. Without, without being specific on this NFL coordinator that I talked to, he FaceTimed me. The reason he wanted to FaceTime me is because he started to, do, to grow out a mustache a little bit. He wanted to show me what it was looking like compared to mine. Um, and, and he'll probably have it shaved next time he's on the show or whatnot. Yeah. So that's not going to really reveal much. But he's got a number of kids. They're all quarantined. These coaches do not have the setups like I do, right? They don't have – I got six monitors here plus four TVs over there, right, one of which is behind me. This Warren thing behind been me in this quarantine life. Is, this TV that's behind me, right, that you can see where my thumb is, 
that TV is actually a 55 inch curved TV. It looks tiny way back there, but that's what that one is. So I got, and I got the projection screen and multiple other ones. These coaches don't have that. I mean, his office was like he had a laptop sitting on like one of those old executive wood wood created desks and he didn't even have a TV there. He had a secondary like old computer that he was using. I mean, the, the set- Because they're they never have, home. The, right. the pride the of a coach is, why do I go home? I can sleep at the office. Yeah, and, and so their home setups are not conducive to this. Um, it's hard to bring people in to work on this. He's quarantined there with- uh, multiple kids of a variety of different ages, plus his wife. I mean, it's just, he is not having fun. He's bored out of his mind. Um, and then, you know, another, the, the college coach that I last talked to, um, they were doing tons of Zoom meetings and everything. But this is the time, you know, you and I talked about this the other day, when they would be doing spring practice, they would be getting ready for all of this stuff. They would be meet with their players doing things. So they're trying to get strength and conditioning ideas to yeah. their guys. They're trying to uh, do all these things remotely. And um, so, he, he really enjoyed our discussion. You know, our aunt, we had a several hour discussion, but. Um, Dude, I saw, I saw an interview good. with Ernie Johnson last night with Damian Lillard. Okay. Like they're getting ready to go in the playoffs. Like they're fighting for the ninth seed. And Damian Lillard said that since for like the last three weeks, he doesn't know if he's shot a basketball. Like he goes out, but he doesn't have like a court that he can like go out there and like really do a full training. Like he can get a shot or two up, but not. He really hasn't picked up a ball, you know, and you, you, we, we just assume that all these NFL or these NBA NFL athletes are all like LeBron James and have, and have really invested in all of these things, but a lot of them haven't. Look, I'll, I'll tell you this, Damien, I'm speaking directly to you here, buddy. Um, build yourself a basketball court. I, I will tell you, I'm not a pro basketball player and I don't have as much money as Damien Lillard has, but however, so in our neighborhood, I would walk my dog because my dog needs walked. And my son, who he actually learned to ride his bike during this quarantine. Amazing. Um, so he will ride his bike with me and we will go around the neighborhood. Our neighborhood's really good about like moving, getting very far apart. If you end up crossing somebody, one guy goes in the road or whatnot, if you cross paths. So it's very, very easy to do uh, in the neighborhood that I live in. But the basketball courts, right? They've completely taken down the backboards and the rims, hung up signs. There is no more basketball. You cannot do this, right? And so I realized, like, obviously my daughter's got her issues going on. And um, But I want my kids to grow up like I played some sports growing up. I want my kids to grow up to have some of this. So what we did is I brought a guy out, a landscaping guy. I brought a guy out, and I he came into my backyard. And I'm talking to him from my deck and he's on the ground. So we're like literally like 20 feet apart talking back and forth. And he is going to come out actually this Saturday. So by the time the podcast comes out on Monday, it's already going to have happened. He's ripping up our patio that we, we had a flagstone patio down there. I'm having him rip that up. He is coming back a few days later. He's going to pour concrete and we're building an actual half court and we're turning our patio that was flagstone into a half court basketball court, but I don't want it looking crappy, uh, just like regular concrete, like a sidewalk would look. Black so what we're what we're doing is we're using stamped concrete. So he's going to come and stamp it, um, and then they paint it so that it looks like stone, but it's really not stone. It's really concrete, and then he's going to put sod in and 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 do like a. a the drainage and all so that. you're going to be so just like 
throwing up jumpers for the next few months. Yeah. So we're going to, what we're going to have at the end of this this thing, we're going to have a much bigger patio area that looks stone, but it's really not. And now my kids can use it as a half court basketball uh, for, you know, starting probably a week or two uh, through, you know, whenever we move out of this house. Um, That is definitely going to be a ramification of all this is people are going to care more about where they live. I feel like it's funny that we were going through a little bit of a rental society. Why do I need to buy a car? I can do an Uber. Why do I need to buy a house? I can Airbnb. Why do I, you know what I mean? Like it became very disposable and and like a, a very big thing in New York is, I don't really need need to know about the apartment. I just want to be in a good location. I, you know what I mean? Like all that stuff. Now everyone's going to look around and go, what if I'm stuck here for four months? How, how can this service me if I'm quarantined? Um, I've never talked to you before the NFL draft. Which positions do you think if you look back at, you've been the most right about from your analysis? Um, your analysis? Yeah, that's, that's a tough question. Um, or what are your pride points? Who are the people that you were – um, little anecdotal, who were you right on before other people? Well, do you, do you want to know like an outside the box take I have before we even dig into players? Do I? Yes. We, I mean, we, we got time. I love this podcast. This is actually super fun because we don't have like a strict schedule of what we have to cover. We're just BS and back and forth. It's a lot of fun. Unless you have like an EDSR about the coronavirus that shows that it's actually been inflated by an easy schedule. <laughs> well honestly like starting off in wuhan like it's overrated it's like facing the dolphins in week two but if you look at the next five opponents oh yeah no no that we i don't have anything like that uh yeah, i need trending edsr for the coronavirus but i will i will say this um i'm a guy as you know i i try to forecast games. I got my start in prognostication through data models and analysis. I now work for teams, help them come up with game plans for how to beat their opponent in any given week. Um, I'm studying that all off season. I'm trying to get a feel for the teams. Then I'm going into the season and analyzing this stuff. I am not the best person who has watched all the film on these college guys at various different positions and all the film that you need to, which I think for evaluating these prospects, as you know, it's very difficult. It's a crapshoot to begin with because you have to try to figure out how is a college guy going to transition to being a full-time professional. Uh, and that's always a, a, an adaptation for a lot of these guys. Even if they do it really well, it's still a big adaptation. And some guys are going to have more success than others. Um, but there are guys, obviously, who study film and college guys year-round. And so those are the experts to be speaking about specific players and they've broken down all the film, but I do little types of analyses, right? Um, I study various different things. So, so from a data backed perspective, right? I enjoy watching film when I have the opportunity, but I am certainly not qualified to tell you I've watched film on all these guys. And this is the best one at this position. If I were doing that, if I was sharing that information, the reality is I would be sort of regurgitating other people's opinions who I trust. Exactly. Um, And that can be done. But what I, what I found interesting, two things. The first thing is that Draft capital, simply acquiring picks and using picks in the draft that have good value because um, there's been a model that was built by a guy named Chase Stewart, which looks at picks having draft points associated with it. So like the number one overall pick has a certain number of points. Right, an updated version of the Jimmy Johnson model. 
an updated version, exactly. And so what I have found doing some analysis of comparing draft points to actual free agency dollars spent is that draft points, having draft value is in the range of being close to 10 times more predictive of how you're going to win games next year than is what you spend in free agency. So you mean the very next year. So if I had eight draft picks and I, and I signed one free agent for 10 million versus I only had two draft picks versus I spent like a hundred million, you actually think that that, that would almost be like comparable for the you, next you year? Are, you are getting more, your ability to win games is actually driven more by what you do how much you're spending in the draft compared to how much you're spending in free agency. Mm. The teams that end up going buck wild and spending a lot in free agency, it's very rare that that actually pays off and they win more games the next season. Unless you're talking about a quarterback, it's the same with a draft class. You get a quarterback, that means a lot, right? But if you're talking about actually um, trying to win more games – Having a solid draft class of several guys in the first few rounds who are actually going to be starting games for you and that those draft points obviously have more value uh, way and way more than what you did in the seventh round, that's going to be more beneficial for you to win games. And then I also looked at year plus one. So not just like what are you going to win in 2020, but what are you going to win in 2021? And there's still – it's more strongly correlated to what you do in the draft than it is what you spent in free agency. So, Are you going to uh, use that for betting at all? Are you going to look at the teams that had the most spent draft capital before the year, and, and is that going to factor in? Yeah, one of the things that I'm doing, I've actually never done this before, but I'm so curious about it for this upcoming season. Normally what I do is I look at draft capital. Who approaches the draft, enters the draft with the most draft capital, and then I start just analyzing what they did and who they picked. Oh, my God, they picked a wide receiver here. These guys typically don't do very well, et cetera, et cetera. However, what I'm going to do this year, because I do think it is going to matter so much, is I'm going to also come back after that seventh round, and I'm going to look at how many draft points did the teams actually spend. So we know what they entered with, what they spent. We'll be able to figure out who thought most highly of their – pre-draft process to make an investment and add more draft capital mm. during the course of the draft and who maybe was a little bit nervous or scared and wasn't sure and gave up some draft capital. Maybe they want to get picks next year when they feel better, you know, more comfortable. And so they gave up draft capital. So that's one thing that I'm going to be looking at. But um, I always look at, as you know, my book covers, you know, where teams are spending based upon position groups, right? Like I don't want I prefer teams not to be overspending at the linebacker position, right? I want to know the teams that aren't spending that much at the quarterback position and have more to spend elsewhere. Um, I want teams to be spending at the positions that most matter in the NFL and correlate most towards winning games. And so uh, certainly getting an understanding as to um, who is spending the most draft points in this draft is something I look at. And I also do a chart every year. I come up with this chart where I very simply have all the different positions in different columns, right? Like wide quarterback all the way through to, you know, safety. safety. And I tally up which teams drafted players, you know, one quarterback, two safeties, you know, one corner, you know, those type. we tallied up. So I'm, I'm seeing what they're investing in and you could do it real quickly in just one graphic. 
Mm. And it, it would be interesting to kind of match up which franchises care about which positions the most and see if like from a sports fan perspective, does that add up? You're like, oh yeah, you know what? They've been a huge linebacker team all these years. Um, you right. said you had two observations. One was free agency versus the draft. What was the other one? So I think in general, um, and this is like a bigger talking point, but let's dive into it if you don't mind. Uh, I don't think context is placed enough at the college level on earning statistics. In the NFL, you know, you do this, I do this, but we do it all in the show all the time. What's this team doing on early downs? What's this team doing on third down? What are their run rates, pass rates, all these different types of things. But I feel like in college, we just go and look at, oh, what was the guy's statistics last year, right? Yeah, we look we at those really totals a lot. Right. We don't really factor in as much strength of schedule. We don't really factor in all these other elements. Um, well, we do say, we do say this. They say, well, they'll go, they'll go, Joe was great. And he did in the SEC. You know what I mean? Like they'll say, right. we, we, we give all of the credit to conferences, but I don't even think we're looking at the conferences year to year. It's all based on like how, like my view of the PAC 12 could be completely different because of 10 years ago with Jake Locker or some shit. True. Very true. Um, but, but like, Look at a guy, look at a running back like Jonathan Taylor, for example, right? He's one of the top backs. He ridiculous. Blew up the combine, been yeah, killing it at Wisconsin for years. He's, he's, been, he's been crazy, right? And we look at his total statistics and we compare those to other backs in different classes or backs in his own class. But guess what? The Wisconsin team had zero around him offensively. Do you know how often they passed the ball on first downs in the first half? They passed the ball just 35% of the time, mm. okay? To give you a comparison, Joe Burrow passed the ball almost 65% of the time. Here's a team that's hardly passing the ball. They don't have great wide receivers. They are a run-first, run-obvious team that is handing the ball to Jonathan Taylor on early downs, on short yardage situations, situations where the defense can predict that a run is coming and yet he is still producing the statistics against defenses that are loading the box and know that a run is coming. That, to me, is a point that needs to be emphasized, and instead we don't really hear much being discussed about that. You know, We're just hearing, well, this is what he did, and this is how I see him when I look at the film. You're which saying, is what you're saying, too, is if there was another running back out there that played more in a pass-first system – and the running back was having success, it's a lot easier for them because the defense doesn't know it's coming. But they knew Jonathan Taylor was coming, and he still did all of that. Yeah, I mean, th that little number, the 35% of first downs in the first half were pass plays, and the other 65% were run plays, that is, like, ridiculous. It's one of the higher rates for, like, uh, uh, one of the Power Five conferences. And So you're a big Jonathan Taylor fan. Well, I, yeah, I, I like what he did given what he was working against. So, yes, I am a big – I'm still a guy who doesn't want a running back drafted at the very top of the first round because the position isn't as valuable. But I will say that you would rather spend draft capital on a running back early on in the first few rounds than you would want to uh, pay a guy in free agency uh, a running back or give a guy a massive contract like they did to Todd Gurley. I'd rather take a younger guy in that position – um, like, I didn't necessarily agree with the Patriots doing that, but a couple years ago, they drafted a running back early. Um, the other thing, you know, this using the same lens, um, I'll take you back one year before we talk about, or back two years before we start talking about Joe Burrow. Remember Josh Allen, quarterback of coming out of Wyoming, mm -hmm. right? He's in, the, he's in with the Buffalo Bills. 
that team did not want him passing the football. That team did not want him passing the football. So think about this. You got a first-round draft pick. You got a guy who – how many top picks at Wyoming at quarterback will you ever have come through your school, right? Your program, you're never going to have these opportunities to have, like, this stud quarterback. So when you got a team that's got this freaking first-round potential NFL quarterback filled with a bunch of other guys, like run, no running back in the NFL that could cut it uh, with the guy I think he was drafted by the Falcons right. and washed out – um, you got receivers who aren't offensive line for run blocking, not that great. We're going to lean on this quarterback, man. He is a stud. We're so lucky to have him. Yet they pass the ball only 40% of the time on first downs in the first half. Out of all the, I think there's been 16, 15, 15 or 16 quarterbacks drafted in the first round since 2015. And then you've got this dra- this year's draft class of like some of the top guys that might go. In I the have first one round. issue with your Josh Allen theory. Your Josh Allen theory is something that Sims taught me, which is look how a coach hides certain players when you're evaluating them. Jabril Peppers is that example in the NFL. They're dropping him back because they're trying to hide him, and that shows you what the coaching staff thinks. My problem is I think the coaching drop-off from the NFL to college is so strong that sometimes I think these college coaches don't even know what they're doing. And I think they go, I run on first down the first half because that's how you play football. So I, I feel like there might be some skewage there. There, there could be some skewage. I like your word there. There could sure. be a little bit of skewage, but, but I will say that um, – you still, at least if it was me, and that's why, like, you're right, some guys you just can't help. So I don't know if you can't help the guy, you can't help the guy. But if it was me and I didn't know anything about it, I would still say, damn, I got Josh Allen this year. The last year I had this guy, the year before I had that other guy, like, I'm going to pass the ball a little bit more with Josh Allen than I did with these other guys. Sorry, well, I, went to a, I went onto a medicine ball. I was trying to, I don't have uh, a chair. What have you been doing? I have so the, I have a collection of four things I can sit on in this room. I have a chair coming, but it's going to be here in early May because that's shipping in this country. I have two oh end tables, one a little bit taller than the other that I've had for a while. I have a, uh, a chair that you would play piano on. It's like a little stool. And I have an uh, exercise ball that the... Um, the, the guy in, the, in my apartment complex let me steal from the gym before they shut it down, and I sprayed it with a Lysol and cleaned it up. But it doesn't have enough air in it, so I'm like low. Okay, let me just tell you this. If your chair is coming in early May, have you heard of Lancaster, PA? Yes, the Amish. Okay. The Amish country. You could get an Amish guy. You could order it. He will whittle you one from a massive tree, and it will be ready before Does May. They, do they take PayPal in, in Lancaster? I'm sure they do. Yeah. No they, way. I'm sure, I'm sure they've adapted. <laughs> I don't. I, I've never trusted Amish uh, furniture. Really? Yeah. I just feel like they're putting. I don't know what's coming. I feel like it's an amp. I feel like it's a Trojan horse. <laughs> even in a, even in a chair. I don't know what they're fitting in there. Um, okay. So who are uh, you? Love Joe Burrow. You love the way that he protects the ball. How do you rank these quarterbacks? Um, and and how do you how do you rank? Okay. So. Good. Let's move into Joe Burrow in this class. Um, what I did, in addition to, I could tell you, you know, we use some of this analysis to talk about Josh Allen, and we also talked previously about Jonathan Taylor. It's passing rate on first downs in the first half. I want to know what my college coordinator thinks of my quarterback, how often he's choosing to pass the ball in this situation, and this is a great way to figure out 
how my quarterback is going to perform um, within the, the within the um, uh, confines of my offense. Right. Because what a guy does on third down varies massively from year to year in the NFL and from college to the pros. So you could get some guys who are like shredding it on third down, have great senior seasons, junior seasons, and they come out and look awesome. But that, that really doesn't translate. You want to know what this guy's doing on early down, specifically first down. Joe Burrow was asked to pass the ball, and I, I put an article up on Sharp Football Analysis, was asked to pass the ball 63% of the time on first downs in the first half. The only quarterback that's been drafted since 2015 who's done it a percentage more was Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes was asked to pass a little bit more than that, but everybody else was below 60% in terms of their pass rate. Jared Goff, Daniel Jones, Jameis Winston, Deshaun Watson, all these guys. Yeah. Okay? But the impressive thing is most of the time when you're talking about, okay, we're going to be a pass first offense, we're going to pass often. What are, you th- what are you doing? You're sort of replacing the run game with the pass game. So it's a lot of high percentage completions, um, not as much risk necessarily. So maybe your yards per attempt isn't all that high, but we're going to just do some high percentage completions, replace, replace the run game with our pass game. But what Joe Burrow did is he put together – 13.9 yards per attempt on his first down passes in the first half. Thir- 13.9. That is out of 313 college quarterbacks since 2014, which is as far as I went back, who had at least 75 pass attempts on first half first downs. Joe Burrow was number one with a 13.9 yards per attempt. He completed 82% of those passes, also number one. Just destroy. All right, here's my question. Joe Brady, the offensive coordinator, seen as so great. He's now the offensive coordinator of the Carolina Panthers. I also don't think that Joe Barrow has decided to pass, and I know that you love early down passing. He has one wide receiver that's likely going to go in the top 25 in Justin Jefferson. He has an up-and-coming wide receiver that's not available for this draft that people are saying might be the best wide receiver if he was in this draft class. I believe he's two tight ends that are going to be in this uh, draft, one of them being Randy Moss's son, a running back that will be drafted, and an offensive lineman with a lot of guys that will be drafted. You just talked a, a, a while ago about all the Josh Allen not having anybody in the NFL how do you analytically balance the fact that, yes, the numbers are great, but look what he had around him, too. How do you weigh that? Because in, in my view, the fact that he didn't just look good but was phenomenal, destroyed every other guy, now he's going to be in the NFL with other NFL guys around him. So you're talking about he was playing with a, a bunch of NFL guys when he was in college. Well, he's now going to have guys more talented overall than even those guys because he's playing with a full roster of NFL players. So, you know, I think – You love Joe Burrow. We'd be, we'd be silly if we said, well, he's going to average 13.9 yards per yeah. attempt at 82% completion rate. We're not saying that he's going to do what he did in college. What we're saying is it's appropriate to be able to look across the spectrum and see where he falls, and he is night and day different, okay? He, to me, stands out as a guy – and this is where Patrick Mahomes falls into it, right? If I'm drafting a quarterback, I want to draft a guy that I feel confident I can build my offense around. I can entrust him to throw the ball on first down in the first half, come out of the gates throwing the football if I need to. How does Andy Reid coach? He coaches with Patrick Mahomes still throwing the football, and Mahomes had a ton of uh, practice doing that in college. 
Joe Burrow is not going to be the type of guy that you need to coddle, that you need to build a run game around. He's the type of guy this analysis gives me the confidence that I can put him out there in pass first situation. Have you looked into Zach Taylor's uh, offense with the Bengals last year? Because everyone's saying that, like, but what about – what did you actually see from him last year as a play caller? Is this going to work with Joe Burrow and Zach Taylor? I think it's going to work, yes. Um, they had some injury issues in Cincinnati. They also lost a lot of one-score games. Um, but I don't mind Zach Taylor. Um, I think that he's if, – if he's got guys that are healthy, they have enough talent there where he – and I feel like he's going to adapt to the quarterback. I think he's going to get – a lot out of Joe Burrow. Now, is it the place that Joe is going to see his ceiling in the NFL? No, no it's not going. He's not going to reach a ceiling with the Cincinnati Bengals if they take him. But I still think that that's going to work out okay to begin with. And Do, we'll see how many years even the coach is there. It of the three other quarterbacks that are supposed to definitely go in the first round, Tua, Justin Herbert, and Jordan Love, who do you have the most concerns about? easy for me, Justin Herbert. And I'll tell you why. Justin Herbert was in an offense like we're just talking about where he was passing the ball only 42% of the time on these first half first downs. Okay, one of the lowest rates in, in of any quarterback drafted in the first round that we've seen since 2015. A lot of times like Okay, let me tell you about the Oklahoma offense. The Oklahoma Sooners produced a couple of guys, Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, right? That's a run-first offense. It's very dominant with the run game. So those guys land in that end of the spectrum. But when the ask to throw the ball, which is not as much, they're lights out. I mean, Joe Burrow was far and away number one in yards per attempt, completion rate, touchdown rate. Okay, number one beyond all these other guys. But Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield were top five in both yards per attempt, completion rate, and touchdown rate, not passing the ball as much. So they had more opportunities, less, op less passing opportunities, so a better opportunity to make the most out of those times that they did drop back. Better play calls. The defense might have been playing run. They're passing against it. It worked out really well. Great offense coordinator. Justin Herbert, okay, he didn't pass the ball a lot. So the defense is trying to play more run. And when he did pass the ball, out of 20 quarterbacks that are entering the league, his completion rate was only 18th. Mm. 18th out of 20. Now, I said 20 quarterbacks entering the league. 20 quarterbacks that were either first-round picks or are in this year's class. Out of those 20 guys since 2015, he ranks 18th out of 20 in completion rate on these first-down passes in the first half of games. So we're not talking about catch-up mode late in the game, your desperation. You're talking about plays within the structure of your offense. You're asked to drop back on first down. You are terrible at actually completing passes. And he also ranked um, – let me see here. Uh, he ranked 10th in yards per attempt. Um, to me, these numbers are concerning. Um, so he wasn't – he's the type so of guy – if let's say, let's say a team – came to you and said, look, we hear what you're saying about Justin Herbert, but we do see some stuff. Where would you feel comfortable drafting him? What's well, his range the, by your metrics? Yeah, so I don't have the metrics on where they should take them. Um, I think more than my analysis, though, you do want to watch film on the guy. You want So, like, you can't just base things just no, on the right numbers. But what you need to do is use them in concert with the film and get a good understanding that, like, the difference between us drafting Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert is that Justin Herbert 
will not be the guy that I want coming out, passing on first downs in the first half, and I'm entrusting my offense to. I need to give this guy a good run game and let him ease himself into mm, the course. Of that's the why game. Josh Allen in Buffalo kind of works. Right, exactly. These guys can work, but they've got to be supported. They've got to be structured into a system. So you can't come out there expecting the coach, Justin Herbert, from a pass-first offensive perspective, whereas you can – with Joe Burrow. I so, feel like Justin Herbert could work in Jacksonville then. Is they're I, just going to run, run, I, pass. I don't know what can work in Jacksonville because I, I don't like the personnel moves. They totally got rid of all the entirety of their defense. I, I just don't like the, the philosophy in general with that. It team. seems like, though, the blue ribbon uh, 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 fair winning pig of this NFL draft is the wide receiver class. That's what everyone loves to talk about. Um, from what you've seen, uh, who is your number one and who kind of is your man crush? Um, again, that's, that's a little bit hard for me to put a finger on because I really think that there's a variety of guys that you can't go wrong with, and it depends what you really want. Do you need the deep speed threat guy or do you want like the possession? All right, how about this? How about you give, I give you a wide receiver and you tell me the perfect situation for him? Okay. I mean, I could try. Let's do it. Jerry Judy. Uh, I mean, well, actually, let me do this. I'll get. I'll do one better for you. Let me pull this up. Yeah. Sorry, this isn't no, good this TV. No, this is perfect. But, okay, there is a guy on my website, uh, Rich, who has taken Z scores for all these other athletes that have come out in the draft. So it's easy for you to make a comp. Let's say you want to say, oh, well, Jerry Judy reminds me of, and then you name like a great NFL player yeah. who's been doing it for years, right? That's That's easy to do. What's harder to do is take a guy – who came out as a as a being drafted, right? Like his rookie year, like Stefan Diggs out of Maryland. What did Stefan Diggs look like coming out of Maryland? And how does he compare to what Jerry Judy looks mm. like coming out of Alabama, both on like a physical nature, a college production nature, uh, all these different aspects of it. So what my guy did is he went back and he looked at college wide receivers that based on similar production to Jerry Judy, for instance, these are the most similar college comps. And then we could see what the, how they were used. Okay, so for let's example, do it. Jerry Judy, based upon his Z-scores and his production and his efficiency in college, plus his age, his size, and um, his production adjusted for age and physical attributes, most closely comps to, I just mentioned him, Stefan Diggs coming out of Maryland, as well as Robert Woods and Rashard Higgins. Woods came out of USC, Higgins came out of Colorado State. And it's so, funny, it's, those are three different levels. Stefan Diggs is sort of like a ceiling, a number one wide receiver getting a big payday. Robert Woods is someone that uh, is, you could argue is anywhere from a top 10 wide receiver to a top 15, 20 wide receiver, but he's not getting as much attention. And then Higgins is the ultimate, he could have a breakout year, but we just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. And, and they're similar in terms of uh, builds and, and stature as well. Um, and you're right in terms of what they've done in the NFL and how they transition. This is where all the crapshoot type stuff comes into play. And okay. What about uh, guys... my favorite wide receiver? I think in this class is CD lamb. What was it mm -hmm. for him? Okay. So you're going to love this. Uh, the top three guys for CD lamb were number one closest was Keenan Allen. 
Oh, hold on. You know what? I tried to do this myself with Connor. The three that I came up with were Keenan Allen, Devontae Adams, and Amari Cooper. Okay. So from a measurement standpoint, from the production slash measurement standpoint, he was Keenan Allen out of California, Kenny Stills when he came mm. out of Oklahoma, and actually a guy you're very familiar with, which you may not like as much because he's had some drop issues, uh, but a very good college receiver, Nelson Aguilar came out of USC. Those are three guys that C.D. Lamb's production in college, along with his physical size and attributes, most closely comped with uh, when they came out of college. Again, that's a so nice little range. different production levels. Are we going to get a Tyreek Hill for Henry Ruggs? Uh, what do we got for Henry Ruggs the third? We actually have a guy very similar to Tyreek Hill, but came out of Georgia, Mecole Hardman. Mm, okay. So Mecole Hardman uh, comping with Henry Ruggs. Mecole uh, weighed one pound less than Henry Ruggs. Mecole was one inch shorter than Henry Ruggs. Um, Henry Ruggs has a little bit more physicality, though, than Mecole Hardman. Um, a guy who's close to uh, him also would be Marquise Goodwin when sure. he came out of Texas back in 2013. Um, and then I'll throw two other guys out there who are on this list. John Ross when he came out of Washington um, and uh, Devin Smith when he came out of Ohio State. Back oh, I love Devin Smith. Oh. Yeah, Devin Smith was such a stud. Now, what about Mims? Kid out of Baylor that's sort of like a physical freak. I'm curious who he matches up with. Okay, let me see. I got to open another article. And I love talking wide receivers uh, because I think it shows a lot about your personality. Like of the top wide receivers in this draft, Warren, what's your favorite cup of tea? Um, I don't know. Like, like I said, you can't go. You're talking about individual guys. Like which guy? Yeah, like I, I I just said CD, but I really am a a rugs. Rugs is my guy because that's the kind of guys I want. That at any point he's gone for seventy. Yes, I like Ruggs. I mean, he would fit in perfectly with a team like the Eagles. Um, Judy is such a stud. But the one thing I, I just couldn't help but when I'm watching Judy in college, the way that he cuts and plants, I, I don't know, like, does that increase his injury Because oh, of how, in like, hard he puts his foot into the earth? My God, yes. I worry about that a ton. Like, if, if he – God, I hope he doesn't hurt himself. But, like, I, I definitely wonder if the way that he plays football – uh, will set him up for issues down the road because he's so dynamic. But it's so, it's, it is incredible to watch grass come up when you watch J- Jerry Judy play. It's like watching a good golfer that takes a huge divot. Like when he makes that outcut, the earth is stopping and you are keep going because he's going to the sideline. Oh, my God. And, and the way that his knee kind of bends and buckles at times to get the – just transfer the it's energy. It's a little Amari Cooperish. Amari was very similar. Yeah. So, so he's, he's crazy. I, I really don't think you can go wrong with like some of those guys. Um, Denzel Mims. And, and again, I'm pulling this, there's two different articles we have up at sharp football analysis. You can read more on this. You can look at a lot of other guys, uh, but Mims comped most closely to uh, these few guys. Number one, Austin Pettis, when he came out of Boise state back in 2011, same height, almost exact same weight, uh, Josh Doxson. Now he hasn't produced the oh, NFL. But Josh Doxson's highlight reel from TCU was amazing. Yeah, he had yeah, that so one catch for Washington. I think it was on Monday Night Football. It was incredible. And then we just never saw him again. No, 
And it, granted, you know, all these guys end up in different situations depending on uh, upon their skill. Uh, they get drafted by a team who doesn't have good quarterbacks, doesn't have good coaching. Yeah. And then, you know, the, even if they were good, they're not going to see their ceiling. Um, and then another guy who you probably have a little bit of familiarity with being on the Eagles for a little while um, was Jordan Matthews, mm. uh, as well as Devontae Parker. So those are the four that closely correlate to Denzel Mims in terms of what they did in college. What is Devontae's your obviously amazing. What is your hottest NFL draft take, the one that you believe the most? I asked this to Orlovsky, and he said that um, I think it was the kid from Georgia, Jake Fromm, is going to end up on the Saints and is going to have a great career. And he felt very strong about that. Interesting. Um, yeah, because Jake Fromm, I'll just tell you, like, from, you know, my my article that I did in terms of my research and whatnot, he was definitely a guy who was down near the bottom in terms of, you know, Georgia. If you watch Georgia games, which, you know, I'm betting on college football, too. I don't watch them as closely as the NFL. But uh, Georgia such a conservative offense, such a slow-paced, uh, don't-make-mistakes type offense. Fromm can make some throws. I like that about him, but his, his coaching really was not ideal to like maximize what we were going to see from him. Um, but I will say in terms of this, this first down production out of these 20 quarterbacks that I have selected, he was 18th in yards per attempt, 17th in completion rate and 15th in touchdown rate. So out of 20, he was really bad. Um, the guy who was the worst, just, just FYI, the guy who was the worst, uh, out of all it was Daniel Jones, right? So even the wow. worst guy, like Daniel Jones could put some stuff together in the NFL maybe, but he ranked 20th across the board on these first down pass attempts and yards per attempt, completion rate, and touchdown rate. Um, I really don't have like a steamy uh, hot – And I don't mean contrarian. I just mean the one that you believe the most. Um, I don't know. I could be totally wrong, but it's it's. I'm just concerned about Justin Herbert a little bit. Um, he's the guy that stands out to me with some red flags that could be drafted pretty high, and and I could be totally wrong. I'm looking at just a couple of data points as well as watching some of his some of his games. But um, again, I hope I'm I'm hope I'm totally wrong. I want all these guys to be studs. Like I I love nothing more than kids getting drafted and looking good. And and but it's our job as me coming on the show, it's, a, it's Arlovsky's job, it's everybody, your job to be honest about what you think is going to happen. And certainly we're going to be wrong probably more than we're right. But yeah, um, yeah I, I, th- I think like, I think Burrow's obviously going to be a stud, but I think Herbert is just too big of a question mark for me. Warren, it was good to hear your voice. It was good to see you. I had a lot of fun. Um, and I, I hope everybody in your family is doing well. I hope that uh, we can get through this healthy, wealthy, and wise, and clean. Uh, it's going to change our lives for a long time, but I'm happy that you've already kind of have this set up there where you're still able to kind of do what you do. Um, do you know, I know you're working on the, the, the book right now. Um, how's that going along, and, and when can we expect that and spend money to buy it? Uh, the book is coming along a little bit slower than I would have liked, and that's in large part when you got when you're used to working from home all day long because your kids are at school and I got two kids mm. that are actually at home during the day, it makes it more challenging. So I find myself working even more um, in the evenings. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, there's certain dynamics in terms of health and status of people of that make it a little bit more challenging. So I'm a little bit behind schedule on the book, but my goal is still to have that book 
come out in late June. Okay. Um, we're going to figure out the delivery of that book. In the past, we've done it on uh, primarily on Amazon where people can buy it. But you know, we sell the book and I'm making 30 cents a copy. We might change that a little bit. Right. Uh, Remember that last season. year. So uh, that's approximate delivery time frame. It should be, should be late June. And I don't think they'll modify the season prior to that, uh, especially if they come up with a real schedule in May. Uh, so at least we'll get the book out there with the anticipation, the season. And I'm right. excited because there's, there's nothing I enjoy more than getting to the Warren Sharp realizations where he completely downloads a team after looking at their numbers and their tendencies. And he, you, you sort of codify it down to 10 or 12 really special nuggets. And we're always excited to see it. And I'm always excited to have you on the show. Warren. Thanks buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. And I'll say it the same as everybody else does, but in New York, stay safe. I know you're doing whatever you need to, but people only say that because they legitimately are concerned for you and care about you. So I appreciate that, buddy. Um, For Warren Sharp, I am the L-E-F-K-O-E man. Stay safe, everybody. But we do love you a lot. Hit up Warren Sharp at Sharp Football, and we will holla, holla, holla at you later. Peace.